Bible with you this morning, will you take it out and go over to your Old Testament to the book of Malachi? Will you go in your Bible with me to Malachi chapter 1 this morning? Malachi chapter 1. 400 years. 400 years. That's how far the jump is from Malachi to Matthew. That is how long God would be silent after his message to the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi. You see, the book of Malachi that I have invited you to this morning is the last book of the Old Testament. It consists of God's final message to Israel before the coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah Jesus Christ, after God speaks through the prophet Malachi for about 400 years, they're going to cease to be prophets among the people of Israel. There's actually going to be a famine in Israel when it came to receiving new revelation from God. This is something that the Jewish people even acknowledge in their writings between the testaments, the, the apocryphal writings as we, as we call them today. You see, in several of the apocryphal books, the Jewish people who live between the testaments acknowledge, they acknowledge this famine. They acknowledge the fact that God had gone silent after the revelation he had given them through the prophet Malachi. Malachi's message is indeed the final message of the Old Testament. The question is, what was that message? What did Malachi preach? What did he say? What did God want him to tell his people, the people of Israel, in the last message of the Old Testament? Well, my dear friends, I want to suggest that if we're going to be able to properly appreciate God's final message of the Old Testament, then I think it is critical that we spend a few moments saying some things about where the people of God are at this point in their history. You see, it is important that we understand that by this time, the people of God, the people of Israel, have been restored from Babylonian captivity. The 70 years of Babylonian captivity are over. A remnant of Jews has come back to Jerusalem, and they've been able to do some amazing things. They've been able to restore the priesthood and rebuild the temple of God and restore the system of animal sacrifices. God has blessed them to accomplish some amazing and wonderful things for his glory, but unfortunately, unfortunately, it appears that by this time, by the time of Malachi, the people of God have forgotten about all that. By this time, it appears they've forgotten about God's blessings and about his provisions. You see, as the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi's message to Israel was not a message of positivity. It was not a message of peace and prosperity and blessing. Instead, Malachi's message was one of, of disappointment. It was one of rebuke and chastisement. It was a message where God, through his prophet, revealed his utter disgust with his people because they were not honoring him as they should. 
And I think we see this as early as Malachi chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. Will you read some Bible with me this morning? Let's read together some scripture. Here in Malachi chapter 1, in the first few verses of the chapter, we see that one of the things that was being believed by the people of Israel at this time was they didn't believe that God loved them, even though God had blessed them in so many ways. They didn't believe God loved them. And God in the first few verses reaffirms his love for them, and he tells them that the problem at this time wasn't that he didn't love them, but instead it was that they didn't love him. They didn't love their heavenly father, the God of heaven, and we see evidence of this in verse number 6. Read with me Malachi 1, beginning with verse 6. God says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despise my name? But you say, have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is to be is to be defiled as for his food, as for his fruit, I'm sorry, his food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Do you see? Do you see what God is upset about during this time? Do, do, do you see how by during this time, by Malachi's time, God is upset? And, and he is utterly disgusted with his people, the people of Israel, because even though he had blessed them in so many ways, you know what they were doing? They were giving God junk. They were giving a great and excellent God junk, particularly they were giving a great and excellent God junk when it came to their worship. They were actually giving God defiled sacrifices on the altar. They were actually offering weak and feeble and pathetic animals to God. They were actually keeping the best animals for themselves, but they were giving God the leftovers. They were giving God junk. They were giving God animals that they did not mind personally parting with, animals that they would not even give their governor. 
Malachi says they wouldn't even give the governor the kind of animals that they were giving God. In fact, if you look very carefully at verse number six, if you look carefully at verse number six in the context of that verse, God is rebuking the priest. God is rebuking the religious leaders. He is rebuking them because they were supposed to be examples to the people. They were supposed to be righteous examples to the people. God is rebuking the priests at this time because they were the ones who were actually taking these defiled sacrifices from the people. They were supporting the people in this effort instead of rebuking the people and urging them to give God their best. These men, these priests, these religious leaders, they were encouraging this behavior. They were endorsing this evil behavior. Their, their attitude at this time really was reflective of the nation as a whole. Both the priest and the people through these weak and feeble and, and pathetic animals that were being offered, they were not giving excellent worship to an excellent God. They were not giving an excellent effort in their worship to an excellent God. Instead, they were disrespecting God. They were hurting God. They were failing to honor God as the great king that he is. The question is, is what about us? What about us as God's people today? What about us even this morning? When it comes to what we are supposed to be here doing, I mean, why are we here this morning? Why are we in this place this morning? Are we here to merely just check off the quote unquote five acts of worship? Or are we here merely just to just to go through the motions? Are we here to give God junk when it comes to our worship or are we here to truly worship God? Are we here to truly please God? Are we here to give excellent effort in our worship because we really believe with all our hearts that we serve an excellent God? Are we here to give God excellence this morning when it comes to our worship, practically speaking, when it comes to the Lord's Supper that we're going to do together later on today? But we're going to strive to really do what the Bible says in regards to that to that part of our worship. Are we going to strive to really concentrate when we engage in that part of our worship? Are we going to strive to really do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And that is examine the body and the blood of the Lord. Or are we going to strive to partake of that supper in a worthy manner? Are we going to strive to really concentrate and try to understand what that supper is all about? Or are we going to give God some junk? Are we just going to open up the packet and just take the cracker and, and, and drink the juice so we can just check it off on the box today and, and not really think about what that's supposed to mean? Are we going to give God excellence in that part of our worship or are we going to give him some junk? And what about when it comes to what we're doing right now? What about when it comes to the hearing 
of the preaching and teaching of God's word. I want to suggest to you that if we're going to avoid giving God junk in this part of our worship, then not only do I have to do my part, not only do I have to make sure that I've studied and I'm well prepared and equipped to stand before you and preach the word of God, but you also got to do your part. You also got to make sure you listen carefully. You also got to make sure you got your Bible open and you're following along and, and, and making clear and connections to what's being said. And you're ready to make some good application to the things that are being said. I got to do my part and you also got to do your part if we're going to avoid giving God junk. And the same is also true when it comes to our singing. You know, by now, many of you know that when it comes to me and my wife. My wife's got me totally whipped on singing. She got me whipped pretty good. And if you know my wife, she sounds like an angel when she sings, but I sound like a strangled horse. I can't, I can't carry a tune in any kind of bucket, but guess what? That doesn't matter to, to, matter to God, does it? God expects me to sing to him. It's like he expects her to sing to him. Colossians 3 verse 16 applies to me just like it applies to her. I also got to give that verse my best effort if I want to avoid giving God junk. I got to give God my best effort when I come here on Sunday. In fact, beyond, beyond demanding my best effort and my best service when I gather with God's people for a few hours on Sunday, the fact of the matter is God actually demands my best effort and my best service Every single day. Every single day of my life. That's the point Paul is making in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12 in verse number 1, Paul, after he talks about the, the death of Jesus and, and how we are saved by the death of God's Son on the cross, he says, because of that, therefore, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your, you see it, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice how even though I don't live in the time of the Old Testament, even though I don't live under that covenant where, where, where God required animals to be sacrificed to him on an altar, according to the Apostle Paul, I still do live in a time where God requires some sacrifices, doesn't he? Paul says God requires some sacrifices from Christians and the sacrifices that he requires is not bulls and goats, it's not animals. Instead, Paul says we got to present our bodies. We got to present something more than, than bulls and goats. We got to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. The idea of that is we got to strive to live lives that please God every single day. We got to strive to give God our best service every single day. Every single day, we got to give our lives to the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. We can't give God junk in any aspect of our lives, but the people of Israel in Malachi's time, they were giving God junk. They were giving him a bunch of junk when it came to their worship, but that's not the only thing that the prophet has to say to them. Go to chapter 2 now, please. Let's go ahead and go to chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Chapter 2 and verse 13. In chapter 2 and verse 13, God says to the prophet, this is another thing you do. This is something else I got against you. 
You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accept it, accepts it with favor from your hand. God says, I'm not going to take your junk. I don't want your junk. Verse 14, yet you say for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for I hate, I hate when God says he hates something, my friends, we need to sit up and listen very carefully to what God has to say. God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Look at what Malachi is preaching at this time. Do you see it? Notice how here in these verses, Malachi is preaching to the people the same thing I preached to you last Sunday. Here in these verses, Malachi is preaching to the people about marriage. He's talking about marriage. He's telling the people that marriage matters. Marriage matters to God. In addition to bringing God honor with how we worship him, God also expects us to honor him in our marriages. That's what he's saying. And why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because the people were not doing that at that time. Notice how, like what's commonly being done in our society today, the people at this time, the men at this time particularly, they were not honoring their marriages. They were not honoring their marriage commitments. They were actually marrying people that God forbade them to be with, and they were putting away the wives that they were supposed to be with, the wives that they were bound to by God's law. They were dealing treacherously with the wives of their youth. They were mistreating their wives. They were abusing the wives that they were bound to by the covenant with God. We see that particularly in verse number 14. In verse 14, God says that he has been a witness. He had been a witness between them and the wife of their youth. The idea there is God was watching how they behaved in their marriages. God had expectations for how they behaved in their marriages. God was going to judge them as to whether or, not, whether or not they had been faithful to the covenant of their marriages. God says he had been a witness, a witness between them and the wife of their youth. He said they had dealt treacherously with the wife of their youth. He says that the wife of their youth was their companion and their wife or their spouse by what? By covenant. Notice how God mentions the covenant. You see that? God mentions the covenant. When God mentions the covenant there, he is saying that when these men divorce the wives of their youth to marry other women, not only were they breaking the covenant they had made with their spouse, but more importantly, they were breaking the covenant they had made with God. They were breaking the promise they had made 
to God. They were breaking the promise they had made to the one who created marriage, the one who invented marriage, the one who, who created marriage all the way back in the beginning. When these men divorced their wives, they were breaking their covenant, not just with their wives, but also they were breaking their covenant with God. This is something that we need to always remember, especially when we start having problems in our marriages. You see, whenever we start having problems in our marriages, whenever you start having problems in your marriage, whenever things start getting rocky in your marriage, whenever you find yourself getting into frequent arguments and disagreements with your spouse, whenever you come across somebody on social media from high school or college and your heart starts to flutter a little bit. Whenever you're tempted to get out of your marriage and get a divorce, engage in an unlawful divorce, you need to always remember what, what marriage is all about. You need to always remember that marriage is not first and foremost about you. It's not about you and you being happy and doing whatever you want to do. Instead, according to the Bible, marriage is first and foremost about God. It is about a covenant that you have made with God. It is about a vow you have made to God. It is about being honorable to another avenue you've been given in your life to bring God glory. Marriage is not about us first. Instead, it's about God first. You see, when we allow God to reign supreme in our marriages, then you know what's never going to happen? Unlawful divorces will never take place. Mistreating our spouses will never take place. Adultery and other kinds of unholy behaviors against our spouse will never take place. Instead, the will of God will always take place. The will of God will always be at the center of our marriages. You see, whenever me and my spouse start having problems in our marriages, whenever we start having some rocky moments and some disagreements, if God is at the center of our marriage, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get out God's book. And we're going to open up God's book and we're going to study God's book together and we're going to let God's book guide us in that situation. And whatever God tells us in his book to do to get our marriage back on track, we are just going to do it. We're just going to submit to it. We're going to obey it. We're going to do the best we can to be faithful to the covenant. We're going to be faithful to the covenant. Malachi told the people marriage matters. It matters to God. It's a covenant between you and your spouse and God, but the prophet's still not done because he has something else to say to the people. And let's look at, let's look at verse number 17. In verse number 17, God goes on to say this to the people. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or oh, where is the God of justice? All oh, they want God to bring some justice. God, why are you letting bad things happen to good people? Why are good things happening to bad people? They want God to bring some justice. Well, God's going to bring some justice. He's going to bring some judgment, and it's going to be on them. Verse number one of chapter three, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. That's talking about John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's all messianic. They're all messianic. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Now watch verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Judgment is coming. For I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Look carefully at verse five. Notice who is included in the list of people who are going to receive judgment from God. Notice how in this list of people who are going to receive judgment from God, not only do you have the sorcerers, and not only do you have the adulterers, and not only do you have the people who swear falsely by the name of the Lord, but you also have the oppressors. You also have the people who oppress the less fortunate. You have the people who are greedy. You have the people who refuse to help the helpless. You have the people who refuse to care for other people who are in need. This is actually one of the big deals of the Bible. You, you understand that, right? You understand that God has this message all throughout the Bible. In the law of Moses, there are provisions made by God for his people to care for the less fortunate, to care for the needy. And not only is that found under the old law, but it's also found throughout the New Testament. For example, in James chapter one and verse number 27, James says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from sin. The orphans and the widows represent the less fortunate. In Galatians six and verse 10, Paul says, that we ought to do good to all men, all men, not just Christians, but especially those of the household of faith. Acts 20, verse 35, Paul told the Ephesian elders to work hard and to help the weak and remember the words of Jesus that says, it is more blessed to give than it is to what? To receive. In fact, speaking of the words of Jesus, look at Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Beginning with verse number 41, here in a judgment day scene, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says that he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice what is under consideration in these verses. Do you see what these people are being judged for in these verses? Notice how in these verses, perfect church attendance is not under consideration. Perfect Bible class attendance is not under consideration. Not saying that we don't need to strive to come to all the services and all the Bible classes. I'm not saying that. Don't say I said that. I didn't say that. But that's not what's being said there. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about there. Here in these verses, the thing that's under consideration is helping the less fortunate. It's helping the needy. These people are lost because they didn't do that. That's a big deal to Jesus. That's a real big deal to Jesus. The question is, is it a big deal to us? Whenever we encounter people in our society who are struggling, who are homeless, who maybe are holding a sign up at a stoplight, and they say they need some help, does that even touch our hearts a little bit? Does that even put any kind of sympathy in our hearts? Does that drive us in some way to try to use our blessings to help bless other people? Or are we quick to say, you know, there's no point in trying to help those kind of people. I know what those people are going to do with the money I give them. They're going to go and buy booze. They don't really need my help. They need to go and they need to get a job. Whenever we see our fellow man in need, do we tell ourselves these stories so we can avoid helping them and so we can selfishly hold on to our blessings? If that's how we think, then I want to suggest something that I think would be wise. It would be wise for us to really listen to what God said through Malachi. It would be wise for us to understand that caring for people in need whether they're Christians or not, is a big deal to God. We may not like that, but it's the Bible. It's a big deal to God. These people are not caring for folks in need. In fact, not only were they not caring for people in need, but there's one more thing we need to point out here before we close this. And that's in Malachi 3 and verse 8. In Malachi 3 and verse 8, the Bible says, Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? And tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I would not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Notice how, in addition to not using their money to care for the needy, God says that they were also failing to give to him properly. They were also robbing God. They were also failing God in their tithes and in their offerings. You see, under the Old Testament law of Moses, the nation of Israel, the people of God, were required to give a tithe, right? They were required to give a tenth. They were required to give 10% of the blessings they had received from God. God commanded them to do this in his law, but clearly by this time, they were not doing that. Clearly by this time, they were not giving properly to the Lord. Instead of giving properly to the Lord, you know what they were doing? They were being selfish. They were being stingy. They were withholding from God what he demanded and as a result of doing that, they were robbing him. They were acting as though they were responsible for their blessings. They forgot that everything they have is a result of God anyway. Like Dave said this morning. These people were robbing God. And you know, from that, I think we learned something important. From that, I think we see that in addition to taking the Lord's Supper, 
And we emphasize that a lot, and rightfully so. But in addition to that, in addition to what we're doing right now, in addition to the singing and the prayers, giving to God is also important. Giving to God is also an important act of worship. In fact, I'm going to say that giving to God is equally important to taking the Lord's Supper. Did you know that the giving we do is also commanded to be done on the first day of the week, just like the Lord's Supper? Did you know that? We don't talk about that much. Why? Because it involves our money. But it's also commanded on the first day of the week. It's commanded to be done cheerfully, but not just cheerfully. When you read Paul's stuff in 2 Corinthians 9, it is also to be done sacrificially. It is also to be done generously. It should also be done in such a way to where we can feel it. We should be able to feel our giving to God. We should be able to feel our giving, not just because it helps us advance and support God's work, but also because when we give to God generously, we demonstrate trust and dependence in God. And that's something that the people of Israel failed to really understand. I mean, look back at the text, Malachi 3 and verse 10. What did God say there in that text? Well, there it is clear that Israel was failing in their giving because they didn't trust God. They didn't trust that if they gave to God properly, he still was going to bless them. He still was going to take care of them. He still was going to make sure they had everything they needed. Their stinginess had actually become a stumbling block when it came to receiving abundant blessings from God. That's what that verse says. These people were robbing God, and we can rob God today through pathetic giving in our worship we demonstrate the same thing these people demonstrated. We demonstrate no trust in God. We disrespect God. We rob God. We treat our blessings as though they really belong to us when the fact of the matter is they belong to God. And so let's consider this verse very quickly. Malachi 1 and verse 10. God says, Oh, that there will be one among you who will shut the gates that you may not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. Notice how God is so disgusted with these people at this time that he tells them to shut the gates. He says, you just go ahead and shut the gates of Jerusalem. Don't let nobody in. Don't let nobody out. These people are disrespecting me. My name is supposed to be great. My name is supposed to be exalted among the nations. I am an excellent God who deserves excellent service. But unfortunately, God says, my people, my people are not giving me that. The question is, what about you? Are you giving God your best service every single day. If you're not, in fact, if you're at a point to where you're failing God tremendously by living a life of sin, you have an opportunity this morning to repent and get back on the right track and rededicate yourself to him and strive to give him the honor that he is due. Or if there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel for the first time, through faith and repentance and baptism because you're ready to also give your heart and life to God, whatever spiritual needs you may have this morning, 
Let us help you with that right here, right now. Let's stand. Let's sing.